The Mysterious Circumstances podcast is hosted by Justin Rimmel. This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at our new home at accproductions.org. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Alright everybody, before we get started on this brand new episode, there are a few shoutouts that I do have to give that I neglected to give during my review episode. I gotta say thank you to Go See Something 83 who gave me a 5 stars, I appreciate that. Chrissy Scribbles, I appreciate that 5 star rating. And Lindsay from Ohio, I appreciate your 5 star rating as well. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Lindsay actually helped me choose my new theme music, so thank you very much again for that. It is greatly appreciated. I do want to thank uh, Lone Star Love who found my gem of a podcast. I do appreciate that. Yeah, the sound is, you know, a little here and there, but, you know, that's the way I like it, so it probably won't change, but thank you very, very much for your review. And uh, KitKats47, thank you very much. You, were, She is actually a long-time listener, and I appreciate that you still like to listen. I do got to say a couple things, though. First of all... Anybody who is trying to like my page, there is actually a page called Mysterious Circumstances Magazine. Be conscious of what you're liking because I actually got a message from them saying that they are getting a lot of my traffic. So make sure you're uh, clicking the right Facebook page. And if not, just join the group. It's American Crime Cast Mysterious Circumstances Group. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, we have a lot of fun in there, so I hope you're not, uh, weak, you know what I'm saying? Because we have a lot of fun in there, so, but we also have a lot of good discussion as well, a lot of good links, a lot of good topics and all that good stuff, so, you know, come on out, join the group, like the page, whatever you want to do. You can follow me on Instagram, you can either follow my personal Instagram account, which if you know my name, just go ahead and type it in, hit hashtag mysterious circumstances, you can find it that way. Or you can follow Mysterious Pod. Uh, that's the one for the actual podcast. You can follow that as well. Uh, Robert from the group and in the page. He has been around very active in both. He's a huge, huge, huge fan. Um, I just wanted to say, Robert, this episode is dedicated to you. I know how much of a fan you are of this particular subject. So I dedicate this episode to you good sir and another one too actually uh before we get going i found out that there are some nurses that enjoy my podcast out of the local area i am from the fort wayne area and i actually have some listeners from from there a couple nurses in the intensive care unit at lutheran hospital which is a fantastic hospital fantastic But thank you ladies for listening. I do appreciate that immensely. I know this is a pretty big surprise, but I'm a mysterious motherfucker and I got my ways of finding out who's listening to me. So maybe you'll find out how I got that info. Maybe not. But anyway, I highly respect what you all all nurses do. I mean, you guys are... You guys and ladies are the true heroes. You're out there working long hours. Um saving lives and all that good stuff and i tip my hat to you ladies uh thank you for liking the podcast and keep up the good work
with that being said, I suppose we'll probably say, my name is Justin, and welcome to Mysterious Circumstances. I've always been terrified, still am, of, uh, of, of water, dark water, sea water, or, you know, river water. I think RJ was absolutely involved in her drowning. RJ is Robert Wagner, who was allegedly one of the last people to see his wife alive. One of the things he told me was um, that there was a fight going on like you wouldn't believe. Uh And he just said, don't believe anything that you see in print. You know, what you're going to be seeing about this, you know, it's it's all a lie. Appeared to him as though RJ shoved her away. She went overboard and said he was very panicky that he was sitting and RJ just kept drinking and kept drinking and he'd say come on let's get her mm-hmm. and he said RJ was in you know such a foul mood at that point that he then shut up and was waiting for what, what you know when are they gonna go to her <laughs> rescue um, until all the sounds stopped the Natalie Wood investigation is open active and ongoing at the time of the incident her death was ruled an accident Recently, we have received information, substantial, enough to make us take another look at this case. Officials now say that Natalie Wood's death in 1981 may not have been an accident. Changing the death certificate to undetermined is huge. The only statute of limitation that hasn't expired is murder. The real mystery here was how did Natalie Wood end up in the water? I believe that Robert Wagner was with her up until the moment she went into the water. RJ said, leave her there, teach her a lesson. The coroner's autopsy indicated Miss Wood had died by accident. That story is 100% false. She had a lifelong fear that she would die in dark water. And then to be in the circumstance that is her greatest horror, it's, it's just beyond imagining. I think she was at least alive for th- three of the hours, hanging on that skiff with our equipment and everything on, in our expertise. We would have found her. She would still be alive today. I'm still having a problem with it. Natalie Wood was one of the biggest film stars imaginable. Natalie Wood was born Natalia Zakharenko on July 20th, 1938 in San Francisco, California. She was the child of Russian immigrants. Her father came over when he was a little bit younger along with uh, her mother. I can't remember where her father was from. I know her mother was from southern Siberia. Shortly after birth, the family moved to Santa Rosa, California, and at about that time, the family changed their surname to Gurdon. So she was known from then on as Natasha Gurdon, and they used Natasha because that is the the name in Russian that Natalia would be an American. Now, the reason they changed their surname, from what I understand, I don't know if this is exactly true, it was pretty much on the bottom of my list of shit to look into, was because her father got tired of being called last for everything. 
Natalie did not have a normal childhood by any means. From a very young age, Natalie's mother tried to fulfill all of her ambitions through Natalie. It was, I don't want to say sad, but it it kind of was. Her mother would claim that she was a famous ballet dancer uh, in Russia, you know, that she was related to, you know, aristocrats, and in all reality, she was not. Her father worked in a chocolate factory and was actually killed in, like, 1918 or 1919, uh, just randomly on the street. So there was no anything special about them right there. But her mother always had those dreams and aspirations. So she really propelled those through Natalie. Some of the stories I'm going to tell you are really going to set the tone for what kind of mother Natalie Wood actually had. And at the end of the day, you're probably not going to like this woman. So when the family moves to Santa Rosa... Natalie Wood is, you know, about, you know, a little bit after birth, like I said. Well, she gets spotted by some some crew members that are shooting a movie there in Santa Rosa. And they notice, they're like, oh, she's a cute little baby. So her mother takes that as she's going to be a star. You know, and we'll talk about a lot of really weird details when we get into the facts because in all honesty it's really really interesting um some of the personal things that natalie knew about herself and that her mother also knew shortly before her fifth birthday the family moved to la they were a working class family uh natalie's father really didn't give a shit too much about hollywood he could care less The only reason they never moved back to Russia was because of communism. He literally wanted communism to end so he could move the family back to Russia. Obviously, that never happened because Natalie Wood became a phenomenally huge star. So, they moved to L.A. And uh, they're walking through the streets and there's a movie being shot. Well, Natalie's mother pressures her... You know, she taught her like a, a Russian a Russian song or whatever, a Russian child song. And they're they're walking by a movie set. Now, you know, movies being shot. And Natalie's mother urges her to go sit. There's a little break in the movie and she she urges her to go sit on the one of the directors like lap and sing this Russian song that she knows. So Natalie goes over, she sings this Russian song. And obviously, she's extremely cute about it. The director's like, okay, you know what? I'll give you a shot. So Natalie ends up getting like a 15-second spot in this movie. And it's really just, you know, there's nothing said. In all honesty, from what I understand, it was literally her crying over the fact that her ice cream cone had fell uh to the ground i can't remember the name of the movie that's really not important the sad fact about this is that natalie was unable to work up real tears um so her mother took a butterfly 
that she had recently found and ripped the wings off of it in front of Natalie to get her to cry. So they do this screenshot and Natalie just is just totally appalled crying, you know, just like a little five-year-old girl totally would. Now, the directors, everybody on set is just extremely impressed. Um, it was, you know, it, it was a very sad occasion, but that literally propelled her into superstardom almost immediately. She started getting little roles here and there. Um, nothing too major. Um, her real big break came when she was about eight years old or so, about seven or eight, uh, in 1947 when she was cast for the lead role as the daughter on Miracle, uh, on 34th Street. And everybody in America knows this movie. I'm pretty sure everybody in the fucking world knows this movie because it is literally played from Thanksgiving to Christmas probably about a hundred times every year. It is it's a phenomenally good movie. She does she's a great great actress. She she literally had no training whatsoever. She walked onto the set. She did her thing. Her formal training was sitting on her mother's lap and watching movies. But she was always considered just very 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 good at what she did. They called her one take Natalie because she would not only memorize her lines, but she would memorize all the other actors lines as well. So she knew exactly when her spots were coming up. She knew when to say everything she had to say. They never really had to struggle to make a movie with this young lady. So, you know, she after after Miracle on 34th Street, Natalie Wood becomes just a huge, huge child star. And I stretch to call her a child star because she literally was a child actress. She was a natural. I mean, everybody that worked with her was just like, she was just so intense, so professional. And she's like eight and nine years old. It was totally unbelievable. Now, also around this time she starts getting a lot of other movie roles especially after Miracle on 34th Street and she actually uh, did so well in that movie and it propelled her so fast that Macy's actually invited her to be in their Macy's Day parade that year if that tells you anything right there you know that's a, that's a huge accomplishment in America if you can say that you were invited by Macy's to be in the Thanksgiving Day Parade but she's making you know she starts getting better film roles and of course her mother is there her mother is there you know just i hate to say the word controlling but she's picking her movie roles you know she's deciding who she can and can't talk to um now because she was a minor she actually was not going to school. She was, um, because you're a minor, if you're an act, actor or actress in Hollywood, you are required to go to school three hours a day. Um, she did that on set. And oftentimes everybody would say, you know, she would, she, in all honesty, all her teachers said she was one of the brightest kids they'd ever taught. She was extremely, extremely good at uh, arithmetic from what I understand. And... Natalie herself would actually feel 
so bad that the movies would have to be halted for her to go to school for that three hours. She literally felt bad, and by the time that three hours was up, she was running back to the set um, because she loved what she did at that point in time, and she felt bad because she was holding up, you know, all these actresses and actors and getting the movie rolling and everything like that. Now, by the time Natalie was 11 or so, she had a few uh, feature films underneath her belt. She was playing the daughter and granddaughter to pretty much every major actor in Hollywood. Now, she she was a household name. She was a very big name. Um, when she was 11, she was shooting this movie called Green Promise. And this will give you a little bit of insight to the type of person her mother was and the type of person that Natalie would eventually become. Uh, when they were shooting this movie, there is a scene where Natalie is crossing this bridge, and there's this raging, raging river, and it actually breaks the bridge, and Natalie has to, you know, hang on to part of the bridge so she doesn't get swept away by the water. Now, why this is significant... And this is very, very, very important. So remember this shit. Is because Natalie was scared to fucking death of water. She, from everything I read, she could not swim. She was scared to death of water. And the reason being was because before Natalie was born, her mother went to see a gypsy. And the gypsy told her that... Her second daughter, which was Natalie, would be this huge, huge star. And everybody around the world would adore her. But then she also told her to fear dark water. Because that would be how Natalie Wood died. Now this gypsy told Natalie Wood's mother this. There's a lot of stories and a lot of you know, bullshit exaggerations about how, you know, the gypsy actually told Natalie Wood this. That is not true. But Natalie Wood's mother never forgot this. And she literally instilled it in Natalie's brain. Natalie was very aware of what this gypsy said. And this was actually part of the reason that her mother tried to push her so hard into you know, the limelight, into stardom, into Hollywood. She knew that she was going to be a big star. She didn't know how. When she found that way in, she totally pushed it 110%. Well, when they're shooting this movie, this bridge actually breaks uh, before it was cued to break. I mean, it was a scheduled thing. I mean, they knew it was going to happen, but it actually happened before it was supposed to. Well, the sad thing about it is that nobody helped Natalie. She was getting pummeled by water. She was holding on to the railing of this little wooden bridge, trying not to get swept away by this water. Now, she's 11 years old. She, she has this fear of water because her mother has put this in her brain that this is going to be the death of her. So, she's sitting there and nobody came and helped her. She's sitting there holding on. The cameras kept rolling. She was screaming for help. And that's what you actually get in that movie. That is actually her. That is not acting. She was scared for her life. Now, why she, while she's trying to crawl up onto this bridge, 
Um, Natalie actually slips and hurts her wrist very, very badly. Um, she she knew it was badly bruised or badly bruised, badly messed up. She didn't know to what extent. Well, as it turns out, she had actually broken her wrist. There were no doctors called to the set. There was nothing done about this, and the reason being. Because her mother had a fear of doctors. She would not take her to the hospital. She would not take her to the doctor. So what she actually ended up, you know, telling Natalie to just, you know, grit your teeth and bear it. Just get the job done. She was, Natalie's mother was scared that this would hurt her chances of getting future movie roles because she would be viewed as weak. Now, Natalie's wrist, like I said, was actually broken, and it actually healed uh, very, very crooked. It never healed right. So that is why, after this point, in pretty much every photo shoot you will ever see, and every movie, with the exception of one movie, uh, she wears a bracelet on her left wrist. That is the reason, because her wrist was extremely messed up because of that uh, break that healed wrong. Now this, like I said, I'm giving you a little bit of insight to her personality and her mother just literally controlling every aspect of her life. You gotta sympathize with that. You you truly gotta sympathize with that. So Natalie, you know, pushes on, you know, keeps making movies up until... Um, you know, about the age of 16, um, she had 20 major movies under her belt by the time she was 16 years old. Now, her mother is still making the decisions and picking her movie roles for her, what she thought would propel her career more, you know, than other roles. And Natalie being, she was a very obedient daughter. She respected her parents. She respected her mother, so she listened. Well, what happens shortly after Natalie would turn 16 is basically unimaginable. So just after Natalie turns 16, her mother gets word that there is a huge, huge major actor who wants to give Natalie an audition for this uh, upcoming movie. Well, he wants to audition her at the Be Beverly Wilshire Hotel in uh, Beverly Hills. So, Natalie felt a little weird about it. She thought it was a little weird, but her mother absolutely insisted because this person was a huge star and one of the very first in Hollywood to start his own production company. This is just a rumor, okay? Just a rumor. Don't fucking sue me the rumor is that it was Kirk Douglas now for those of you familiar with the Gene Spangler case you know, all you true crime fans uh, it's a very big case his name comes up in that case as well and it's also a Hollywood case well apparently he wanted to have her audition at the hotel room um, she wasn't even old enough to drive her mother drove her there when Natalie gets up to the room this unnamed person who, you know, we know about the rumors. This unnamed person proceeds to tell Natalie that he has always wanted to fuck her. 
and he has always wanted to fuck a teenager. He proceeds to rape her brutally. Now, this is proven fact. Natalie Wood, um, early on at the age of 16, was brutally raped to the point where she had to go to the hospital afterward. The actor told her not to tell anybody because nobody would believe her and she would absolutely ruin her career, which was the last thing she wanted to do because, you know, at the time she wanted to please her mother. Like I said, this didn't just emotionally traumatize her, but it physically traumatized her. She was in the hospital. Now, the reason that not very many people know about this is because Natalie's mother would not call the cops. The reason she would not call the cops is because she wanted Natalie to still be seen as a wholesome younger actress, um, an innocent actress, and she thought that reporting this to the police would jeopardize or possibly ruin Natalie's career, so they kept everything very, very quiet. You know, after everything was said and done and, and Natalie, you know, recovered from her injuries and some of the emotional trauma, this is when Natalie started rebelling. She started rebelling like crazy. She basically made a deal with her mom that she was going to start picking her own movie roles. And since she was pretty much the breadwinner of the family, she was going to start doing what she wanted. Now, she finds out about this script. And she approaches a guy named Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray was directing this movie coming out that they were trying to cast for called Rebel Without a Cause. As I said that, I just got chills because, yes, I'm 36 years old. I am an Indiana boy. I am a diehard James Dean fan. Not only because he's an Indiana boy, but because of the fact that dude was the fucking definition of cool. He was also a phenomenal actor that gave every single thing he had to every role that he ever did. I have seen Rebel Without a Cause from the age of 10 on probably like 200 times. It is legit one of the greatest movies ever made. Now, Natalie found out about this movie. She found out who was involved, which was James Dean. James Dean was huge and upcoming at this point in time in Hollywood. She wanted the role of Judy. And Judy, the reason, part of the reason she wanted this role is because Judy was in this movie rebelling against her parents. It was the teen angst. It was all, all that was rebellion at this time. And she she wanted that role so bad. So she starts hanging out with Nicholas Ray a little bit. She starts hanging out with a co-star, Dennis Hopper. For those of you who don't know, Dennis Hopper was in that film. And she starts, you know, uh, chatting it up with James Dean a little bit. Nicholas Ray said she was too wholesome for this part. Um, he couldn't really envision her seeing, you know, seeing her as this this Judy character. So one night when she is out partying with uh, a couple mutual friends and Dennis Hopper, 
Uh, they're out drinking, getting drunk and stuff. Uh, Dennis Hopper's actually driving uh, a vehicle, and I'm not exactly sure where he's driving. I do know Natalie Wood is is in the vehicle with him. Uh, they actually get into a pretty serious car wreck. Um, from what I understand, Natalie Wood is actually thrown from the car. So, being the clever um, girl that she is, and I say this with a total smile because, in all honesty, I could see this being some shit that I would do. She does not call her mom. She does not call her dad. She does not call her friends. She is taken by ambulance to the hospital where she is being treated for her injuries. She calls Nicholas Ray to come to the hospital. And when he gets there, she says, Do you know what this doctor called me? This doctor called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. And he just kind of stood there and just shook his head. And as he was walking out of the hospital room, the doctor was walking in. He looks at the doctor and says, you take care of this patient right here. This is uh, the star of, of my next movie. So Natalie Wood got the role of Judy in Rebel Without a Cause. And that's that's how she did it. And, you know, as, as fucked up as it is that... That to me is is an honest, really cool story. Really cool story. But moving forward, um, Rebel Without a Cause was a fucking massive hit. I mean, massive. You know, James Dean nailed nailed the character. James so good, so good. Um, Judy hit the nail right on the head. Dennis Hopper, he was obviously a supporting actor. I mean, uh, he did great. Um, Sal Minio, um, also starred in the movie. He, he played, uh, Plato, and he actually died a very mysterious death as well. Um, you know, some say the movie's cursed, whatever. That's, that's not my bag right now. I don't care. But that propelled her into young adulthood as an actress. She was no longer seen as a child star she was seen as a young adult actress, and that's exactly what she wanted. She wanted to move forward. She made that transition. So, at about this time, she's she's enjoying life. She's out in Hollywood doing her thing, and she's loving the attention. She's you know she gets validation on a you know daily basis from all kinds of guys in Hollywood. You know, that's something that she she really, really needed. Um, now, there are stories of her on the set. There's actually a lot of stories from, from that set. She was crazy about James Dean. She was absolutely crazy about him. Uh, she actually started a short affair with Dennis Hopper. Um, and she actually was sleeping with Nicholas Ray as well, who was 30 years her senior um, and it wasn't so much the fact of the sleeping around I think at this point it was the fact that this was the control that she had always sought for herself that she never had throughout her childhood you know her mother always controlled everything and this was her way you know seducing men was her way of having that control and i hate to use the word promiscuous but at this point in time she was a little promiscuous now at about the age of 18 
um, the studio arranges a date for her. They arrange a date with a, a young actor who's actually, I believe, eight years older than her um, by the name of Robert Wagner. You know, he was a movie star at the time as well. Um, they dated for about a year, and at the uh, at the age of 19, they married. They were married from 1957 until 1962. Um, now, about this point in time here in the uh, 60s, you know, about the mid mid late 60s, early 70s, uh, Natalie Wood actually had a few children. Um, or a couple children. She loved being a mother. She pretty much quit making movies. And she was totally fine with that. She was the mother that she never had. She was there. She was loving. She, you know, she was just not only a beautiful person. But she was a beautiful parent. You know what I mean? And for those of you who... Who have those types of parents and who have children for that matter can totally understand where I'm coming from. She was, uh, she ended up divorcing Robert Wagner in 1962 and she, you know, played the single role for quite a while until about, uh, she was married to a guy named Richard Gregson from 1969 to 1972. That, actually ended pretty upsetting he or she found out that he was having an affair with her secretary um so she filed for divorce and within a few months she was back with robert wagner again and uh, from 1972 until 1981 uh at the time of her death they were married now there's a lot of dispute on why she got back with Wagner, why she didn't. Um, it was a tumultuous relationship. It it was it was healthy at times and at other times it was not. Robert Wagner was known as a jealous a jealous guy. Um he got jealous, he was temperamental, you know, he was somewhat controlling, you know, Hollywood, they were the it couple in Hollywood. Hollywood absolutely fucking adored this marriage. So I think that was part of the reason that they just continued forward with it. But I, su I suppose with, you know, all that back information behind us, let's go ahead and move forward to the chain of events of late November 1981. But first, I gotta get another drink, so let's take a little break. Now, here's how the timeline of events goes down. Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood, the captain of their 60-foot yacht named the Splendor. Um, the captain's name was Dennis Davern. And Christopher Walken, who was Natalie Wood's co-star in a movie that they were shooting at that point in time called uh, Brainstorm, I believe. It was a sci-fi movie. It was actually pretty fucking horrible. Um, they were all out basically hanging out on, on, uh, the, the Wagner's yacht, uh, like I said, named the Splendor. Um, Christopher Walken was invited. This was Thanksgiving Day weekend, 1981. This was on the evening and night of November 28th. 
They are at Doug's Harbor Reef Restaurant, located around Catalina Island, Santa Catalina Island, from what I understand. Um, around this point in time, there's basically a shitload of yachts out there just hanging out. Everybody's partying over the weekend, having a good time and everything. And the restaurant uh, closes at about 10.30 or so. And that's when the Wagner party decides to leave. They ordered a couple bottles of champagne uh, to go along with them on their yacht. And they they head back. Now, at 10.30 p.m., the party returns from the restaurant. And like I said, this party is Dennis Davern, the skipper of the yacht. Robert Wagner, known as RJ. Natalie Wood. And her co-star, Christopher Walken. At 10.45 p.m., Wagner and Woods get into an argument, and they get into such a heated argument that Robert Wagner breaks a bottle of wine, stating that he was basically accusing Christopher Walken of having an affair with his wife. Now, from everything that I could find out, there were a lot of rumors about Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood having an affair. Absolutely was, nothing was confirmed. Um, from what I understand, they were actually just pretty good friends. I mean, in all honesty, like, Christopher Walken seems like a pretty fucking cool guy to hang out with. I would hang out with that guy. So, I mean, it's not understandable that they could be friends. At about 10.50 p.m., Walken goes to bed in his stateroom. This timeline of events, before we go any further, is what I could piece together. Um, this is not what Robert Wagner says happened. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But at 10.50 p.m., Walken um, goes to his bed in the stateroom because he doesn't want to be a part of, of the argument. You know, he knows that he's being accused of something that he possibly wasn't involved with, with meaning an affair. But it is stated by Dennis Davern that Wagner breaks that bottle and looks at Christopher Walken and says, What are you trying to do? Seduce my wife? So, the timeline-wise, that does make sense that he would retreat to the bedroom, uh, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, Robert Wagner possibly did have a little bit to be jealous about at this point in time with Christopher Walken, and we'll get to a little bit of that in the theories. Um, at 11.05 p.m., Marilyn Wayne, a person on another yacht who is uh, moored, which is basically anchored or whatever, not too far from the Splendor, starts hearing cries for help. Now, she hears these cries for help for about 20 minutes or so. And at about 11.11 p.m., John Payne and Marilyn, they they call the Avalon Harbor Patrol, and, the, the harp be, and they call this Harbor Patrol, which is a nearby patrol, the harbor master at Two Harbors, which is where the Splendor was actually moored, uh, was not responding. So they call the Avalon Harbor Patrol and say, hey, we hear somebody out here. They're screaming for help. We're not sure if it's part of a party. We're not sure what's going on, if somebody actually needs help or not. That's about where that ends right there. But they literally hear somebody, you know, it's assumed that it is Natalie Wood crying for help 
for somebody to help her for about 20 minutes or so. Now, Dennis Davern states that at about 11.30 p.m. or so, he comes out from the stateroom because he had heard them arguing. He retreated to his stateroom, turned the music up because he didn't want to hear the argument or didn't want anybody to think that he might be eavesdropping on any kind of argument or conversation, which, you know, in one way is respectable. You know, I can I can totally understand that. Well, he comes up and apparently from his side of events, he says that he sees Robert Wagner there and he's drinking. And this is about, like I said, 11.30 p.m. And Robert Wagner tells Dennis Davern that Natalie and the dinghy, which was uh, tied to the side of the yacht, uh, is actually tied to the side with the swimming platform. He tells Dennis that Natalie and the dinghy are missing. Now at 11.31, one minute later, Dennis Davern wants to search. He wants to turn on spotlights. He wants to start searching. He wants to call the Coast Guard. He wants to call every harbor master he can. Um, according to Dennis Davern, him and Natalie were very, very close. Now, you will hear contradict contradicting stories about how close they were, whether or not Natalie actually even liked him or not, but it is the pure simple fact that whether she liked him or not, he definitely was very fond of her. You know, maybe not so much that he was like madly in love with her or whatever. But he wants to start searching immediately after he finds this out from Robert Wagner. So Robert Wagner uh, refuses. Robert Wagner says no. He's like, we're, we're not going to search. They sit there for a few minutes, and at roughly 11.35 p.m., Wagner pours Davern a drink, and they kind of sit there and drink together. Now, this is the part of the timeline that bothers me, because Dennis Davern is obviously very concerned about what's going on with Natalie, where she's at, you know, all that good stuff, what's going on. But yet, he decides to drink with Wagner, who, from his um, accounts, is very flustered, very, uh, a little bit sweaty. He said he's very agitated, just very, very, very nervous. But they decide to drink until about 1.30 a.m. Uh, that's when they uh, stop drinking, and Robert Wagner decides to call the restaurant that they were at, uh, Doug's Harbor Reef. When they left at about 10.30, they all knew that the restaurant was closing. Now, it raises a little bit of questions on why Robert Wagner was wanting to call a restaurant that he knew was closed, but he decides to call this restaurant um, and see if maybe his you know, wife was there or whatever, if they had seen anything or heard anything. At about 2 a.m., uh, the Islander picks up Wagner. They take him to the restaurant. Uh, Wagner knows the place is closed. That is literally the only place that he looks for her. He instructs 
Dennis Davern not to turn on the searchlights, not to call anybody. He tells him specifically not to. But yet he goes off and he searches at a restaurant that he knows closed at 10.30. And this is at 2 a.m. Now at 2.30 a.m., the, the cook and the manager of this restaurant start looking for Natalie in the water. Um, they are very, very informed on what's going on. They start a water search because Robert Wagner refuses to let anybody call the Coast Guard or call anybody else. Now also at 2.30 a.m., the restaurant owner himself drives to the harbor master's house to inform him of the situation. Now at about 2.45 a.m., the restaurant owner gets the boat and uh, starts searching the water himself. Now the harbor master goes to the yacht, the Splendor, and, uh, and tells Wagner to call the Coast Guard. Because by this time Wagner had gone back to the yacht. Um, tells him to call the Coast Guard immediately and Robert Wagner again refuses. Now at 3.15 a.m. after a little bit of arguing and them searching the water themselves... Um, Harbor Master goes back to the Splendor, and he insists that Wagner call the Coast Guard, and yet again, Wagner refuses to call the Coast Guard. So finally, the Harbor Master just pleads with him, and he basically pleads with him and begs begs him to let you know, him call the Coast Guard. He's like, if you're not going to fucking do it, let me do it, man. Something needs to be done. You know, this is your wife. You know, what the fuck? And at this point in time, he actually concedes. Um, Wagner goes ahead, and at 3.25 a.m., the harbor master makes the call to the Coast Guard. Now, at this point in time, the search does ensue. Um, obviously it is very, very, very dark water. Um, it is a vast ocean. There are currents, um, and she is on a 12 foot dinghy, uh, supposedly, uh, the dinghy is missing along with her. So, you know, for, you know, everybody's sake, nobody knows really what's going on. They just assume that she might've taken it out or fallen overboard or drowned. Nobody knows what's going on now. As soon as daylight breaks, you know, helicopters start out, and at about 7.45 a.m. on November 29th, 1981, the body of Natalie Wood is found um, by aerial view, um, still wearing her red down coat and socks, um, face down in the water, about a mile away from the Splendor. Uh, the dinghy is actually beached on a small nearby island from what I could gather, and she is pronounced dead at the scene. Now, as we just discussed a little bit, Robert Wagner, obviously, um, you know, his actions are very, very questionable at this point in time. Now, Christopher Walken states with the same story is that he you know went back to his stateroom after Robert Wagner had broken that bottle and accused him of sleeping with his wife um, he went back to his stateroom and fell asleep 
Um, ever since 1981, this is the story that he is literally stuck with, okay? Robert Wagner's story has changed a few times. Um, it's usually only minor details, nothing really major, nothing worth um, talking about to very, you know, a great extent. And from what I understand, until about 2008 when he wrote his um, life story, uh, he wrote a book, uh, that's when he actually admitted that he was did get into an argument with Natalie Wood that he did break the bottle. I believe that was the very first time that he actually admitted to that. So that is the story of events. That is the timeline. That is what happened. Now let's jump into some facts. Natalie Wood was 64 inches tall and she was 120 pounds. Now, in late November around Catalina Island, the water temperature on average is between 60 to 65, you know, degrees Fahrenheit, okay? Now, at this temperature, hypothermia can set in and actually, you know, make you unconscious at the very least within two hours. Now, that is for a regular-sized man, let alone... Uh, 120 pound uh, person so let's just say that there's a good chance that she probably wasn't alive out there very long another fact is that in the original coroner's report this was ruled as an accidental drowning you know with the onset of hypothermia now the original coroner uh, the LA coroner Thomas Noguchi now, Thomas Noguchi is actually extremely famous. He was known as the coroner to the stars. He did the he was the coroner for such people as Marilyn Monroe, Robert F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Natalie Wood, obviously, John Belushi, and Janis Joplin. So he definitely had a very interesting career he actually did write a book about a lot of the people that he you know did you know the autopsies on or, or was the coroner for i should say there were some medications found in natalie wood's bloodstream um, she had a blood alcohol level first off of 0.14 which in america um, we have a 0.08 which is legally intoxicated, you can't drive. I can tell you right now, like, it doesn't take that much to get over .08, let alone .14. I mean, granted, yeah, for somebody like her, .14, she was probably intoxicated. Um, there were also, like I said, medications found in her system, uh, one of which was a motion sickness medication, and the other one was painkillers. Now, as we all know, those do intensify the effects of alcohol. So, you know, we'll, we'll touch base on that a little bit in the theories. Um, there were injuries, though. Now, this is the part that actually really bothers me quite a bit. There were injuries sustained to Natalie Wood's bodies, their, her body. There were bruises around her ankles, knees, wrists, wrists and an abrasion to her cheek. 
which would be consistent almost with um, a beating, basically. Um, with They would be consistent with her getting beat. Now, those really didn't strike Noguchi as odd, and the reason being because he really didn't have enough evidence to pursue anything. Um, the The detective on the case, uh, I cannot recall his name, uh, he stated that he he basically just went by Robert Wagner's story. Christopher Walken says he was asleep. Uh, Dennis Davern didn't say shit until he wrote a book in 2011. He was very, very quiet. He said he didn't know what happened. Robert Wagner said it was an accident. I don't know what happened. She was out on the boat and then she was missing. So basically that was the gist of this fucking investigation. And to be honest with you, it really pisses me off. Because if a coroner is going to sit there and say, well, why are these all these uh, you know bruises all over her body? Well, what they came up with was that she had fallen overboard grabbed the dinghy, and, you know, a lot of these bruises and abrasions had come from her trying to get back in the dinghy. Um, here, here's the part that really bothers me about that, is the fact that the dinghy was tied securely to the swim platform on the side of this yacht. Why, why would she have to worry about climbing back in the dinghy when she can just go around the side of this thing? And literally climb up the swimming platform. That does not make any sense. Now where this all comes relevant. Is in 2011. Dennis Davern writes a book. That's called Goodbye Natalie. Goodbye Splendor. And in this book. He specifically states that. Robert Wagner was responsible for Natalie Wood's death. He basically spills all the beans. He tells about the fight. You know, he tells about, you know, this whole timeline that I just laid out for you guys. Now, this timeline does not match the official um, investigation timeline. But the official investigation timeline is, like, totally full of shit, alright? So this is the one I went by because this right here is actually more reliable from other witnesses and and all that good stuff you cannot fabricate when a call was made to where this timeline that i gave you guys actually matches the calls that were made the people that heard the cries the harbor master the restaurant cook the restaurant manager the restaurant owner this is the timeline that matches all of those this is the timeline that dennis davern gave that's why I'm more inclined to believe this than I am to believe the L.A. County um, investigation timeline. I think it's totally full of shit. I think they were fucking scared of Robert Wagner for some reason. I don't know. So with all that, let's kind of touch base on a couple theories, okay? The, we're going to start with least plausible, probably. Um, least plausible is that... Natalie would purposely got into the dinghy to get away from the yacht, possibly to go to shore, to go to somewhere else. The reason this is most the least plausible to me is because Natalie would, from the time that she could understand what her mother was saying, 
was scared to fucking death of water. There were three men on this boat that knew she could barely swim. She knew she could barely swim. She fucking hated water. She had a fear of dark water. She would not willingly get on this dinghy to try to get anywhere. And if that was the case, why would she be off the side of it to where she couldn't get around to the swimming platform? It, it honestly makes no sense. I I could see her slipping and falling um, because of some of the bruises, but it still doesn't make sense. The bruises on the ankles kind of throw me off. I could see the bruises on the knees if she was falling. I could see the abrasion on the cheek. I could see the bruises on the wrists. But at the end of the day, it just it really does not make a lick of sense to me. And it... You know, for somebody who this is their biggest fear, I don't see them willingly doing that. Now, the next somewhat plausible theory is that after the argument, um, Natalie would accidentally slipped on the boat and possibly rolled um, into the water and was grabbing on to the dinghy, you know, to... Because, like I said, she could barely swim. Now, with her alcohol content combined with the medication, this is um, a likely story. I could see that. But still, when a dinghy is safely secured to a yacht by a captain, I really don't foresee how this could be a possibility that she could not get on the boat. It really does not make sense to me all that much. Um... I mean, granted, the investig—you know—the investigation was reopened in 2011 after Dennis Daffern released this book. I will say that we'll touch base on that here in a minute. The fact of the matter is, that's just—it's not a very likely story. I mean, I could see it happening, but I just—I really don't think that's what happened. And granted, this is just opinion. The next likely story, according to Dennis Daffern, and. In all honesty, from some of the facts that I gave you guys, the timeline, all that good stuff, the most likely scenario that I think happened is that when Dennis Davern retired back to the stateroom, Christopher Walken probably was asleep. Um, it was stated that he was also given some motion sickness pills and combined with the drinking. There is a good chance that he was asleep now. You know, I want to say he would have woke up to the sounds of her screaming for help considering a yacht that was fairly far away could hear the screams for help. Um, that's that's one of the things that really, really, really bothers me. Um, I think that after the argument, they went up deck. I think that her and RJ got into an altercation. I think from the bruises on her wrist, he might have grabbed her wrists. He might have accused her of sleeping with Christopher Walken more, possibly hit her in the face. As for the ankles and the knee bruises, um, I could see those happening as him hitting her and sliding off of the swim deck as she was going down. Now I could see her hitting the water and him actually untying the dinghy um, as kind of like a here, you know, grab onto this. You'll be fine. Stay the fuck out there. Um, I'm pissed at you type of thing. But I, I mean I could also see it as him just being in a jealous rage. And accidentally maybe you know not 
purposely doing it, just doing it out of rage, which is still doing it purposely, do not get me wrong. But if if Dennis Davern's account is correct, I think that is the most likely scenario. Now, when Dennis Davern released his book in 2011, this investigation was reopened. Um, and I believe in, uh, I think it was July of 2013, the current coroner at the time, I do not know if she still is the current coroner, um, actually stated that the bruises and abrasion to her face were actually caused before she got into the water. So that is probably the most likely story that I would go with or the most likely theory, I suppose you could say. So, you know, take that as you will. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, given all the facts, the past history of the two, um, you know, a little bit of Natalie's history with her being scared of water, I, you know, I would love to hear your theories. Personally, I think that is probably the most likely scenario, but you never know. I could be wrong. This is all opinion. You never know. But, I suppose, um, that's really all I got for you. Um, it is a sad, it is a very, very sad tragedy. Um, Natalie Wood was a, she was a superstar. I mean, she was a beautiful, beautiful actress, and she was an amazing actress. Honestly, I, you know, when they changed, when they changed the, you know, the cause of death from accident to undetermined on the actual coroner report in 2013, that leaves open a wide range of possibilities. That's not necessarily saying homicide, because then there would be formal charges, because there's not enough evidence to change it to homicide, and that's why they didn't. That's why they put it as undetermined. But the fact that the, you know, the coroner's report and the cause of death was changed to undetermined, that one single word right there means that something happened that night that we will probably never know about. And that is a sad fact, and it's a sad reality. So that's really all I got for you folks. If you are going to be at CrimeCon this weekend, stop by Booth 15. I'll be hanging out there representing American CrimeCast, the other podcast that I do. Come on by. I'll probably be getting drunk somewhere Friday or Saturday night, maybe both. I don't know. There's a lot of good meetups going on. There's a lot of activities, all that good stuff. I'm already pretty much having a panic attack just thinking about it, so you never know. But it is what it is, you know. So uh, if you're going to be down there, give me a shout out. Stop by, say hi. If not... I will see you find folks on the flip side.